you know, I have a workshop I do sometimes called toss and dare. Like you have to throw out some old stuff to, and sometimes life throws out old stuff. Like we get fired from our job or we retire or only one leg works. So I'm not going to be tap dancing anymore. Sometimes life throws limitations at us. And sometimes we create our own with our own doubts. So know the difference and be willing to try, be willing to fail and find other people to do it with because doing it alone is the hardest and loneliest way to do stuff. Retirement. That's what we're all aiming at, right? But exactly what does that mean? It conjures up visions of endless days of golf, drinks with little umbrellas in them on a tropical beach, feet up, reading a book. Is that what it's all about? I don't think so. Life would get pretty dull after a while without anything meaningful to do, don't you think? I'm Jackie Doucette, and I'm on a mission to discover exactly what life is like beyond retirement. Join me while I chat with people who've already done it, who've retired to something rather than from something. Let's find out together exactly what's waiting for us when we say goodbye to that 9 to 5. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Retirement. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Randy Kay. Randy is a motivational speaker, a radio and podcast host, an actress, a singer, a teacher, a mental mental health advocate, and she's a wife, a mom, a grandma. Life is all about balance, I think, and she has that down. Um, Randy, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I don't know if I have it down, but I keep working at it. Let's put it that way. You don't get balanced down, I don't think. It would be nice. <laughs> so like I do with all of my guests, let's take a moment first just to kind of figure out who you are, just to get a little summary of what you've done and how you ended up where you are today. Well, that could take an hour, but um, I will give you the very, <laughs> very brief summary. I think Looking at your podcast, Beyond Retirement, it's, it's all about reinvention, and, and many of us reinvent ourselves when we retire. My life has been constant reinvention, and part of that is that I chose a long time ago to make a goal to not have any day the same as the day before. So, And the root of that was when I was 17 years old and I was about to enter my freshman year of college and I had worked throughout high school to save money for college because back then you could do that. And I got out without student loans and I had done a bunch of things, but this particular job I got for the summer and it was nine to five Monday through Friday in what I thought would be a glamorous field, the publishing world. But of course, a 17 year old summer employee doesn't come in booking authors for book tours. So basically I spent the summer facing a blank wall typing terribly because I don't type well. And one eye on the clock the whole day. And I thought, I don't know. I, I think I want to be an actor. I love acting. I love singing, but whatever I do, I'm not doing this. I'm never doing Monday through Friday you know, one, nine to five. And I think that has kind of guided me ever since. Now, if that job had been exciting and wonderful, I might've loved it. My life might've been completely different. So I finished college in three years and decided that I was going to make a living as an actor. So where that has brought me in terms of reinvention is 
spent much of my 20s in New York and then Los Angeles and traveling around the country a bit, making a living as theater actor, a few bit parts here and there on TV and film, singing with a band, doing various things, commercials here and there, a little bit of modeling, not fashion modeling, but just print modeling, just being a regular person. And there came a time when I was nearing 30 and hadn't gotten married and had kids that I discovered, and I can save the story for later, that I really wanted to make sure I had balance. I did not want to be like many of the people I saw and spoke to in LA who had gone through their life trying to be a star and had forgotten to have a life. So within six months, I had moved back to Connecticut, gotten married and discovered I was pregnant. So that was a lot. And, but I, as an sometime improv actor, I know that limitations cause creativity. So out of those limitations came a career as a voice talent. And when my husband abandoned the family in an alcoholic stupor, when my kids were three and six, out of that came my need to work full-time at something that I loved. And I became a radio personality for 17 years, continued to do voiceover work, continued to do theater when I could. And it was like, you say balance, it's more like a jigsaw puzzle of like, how does this fit in here? And where's the edges and what's in the center? So I raised my kids as an actor and radio personality. And then as they grew and we faced our challenges, when radio and I came to an end at the station I'd been at for 17 years, I thought, well, how do I reinvent myself now? And I became an author. I became a professional speaker and I became an audiobook narrator. So that kind of morphed into that. I now still work on the radio again and my kids are grown. One has a different path than I planned on because of an illness. My other child became a mom three times in two and a half years. So I'm very invested in grandma time with little kids and I'm remarried. And so my professional life has always been about reinvention. I've spent time as a college professor. I spent 12 years teaching drama in a private school. So my kids could go there for pretty cheap and uh, everything is just endlessly fascinating. Not me, the things I do (laughs) are fascinating. (laughs) I think you're pretty fascinating as well. And and you've done so much. And it's a lot, you know, I have a nephew who graduated from college and we went down to Florida to watch him graduate. And my younger brother, uh, Matt's father, the graduation speech had to do with having either a full glass of water to drink from or a bunch of glasses of water, each filled with an inch of stuff, which one is going to quench your thirst better. And my brother looked at me and went, you are not the one glass of water girl. (laughs) You are the one (laughs) with like 10 glasses of water with a sip in each. But I discovered there's a word for that from a TED talk. It's called multi-potentialite. I'm sure you've heard of it. And once I heard that, I went, oh, there's a name for what I do. Well, that's kind of cool. But I think every actor, anybody in a creative field branches out a bit to expand what it means to be an artist. So I guess I must be happy doing it this way because I'm approaching 70 years old and I'm still piecing things together. So 
Well, you've definitely jumped right in and created a new mold for what beyond retirement is because you started it at 17 and and you decided at that point that life was going to be a bunch of different things. And, and you've certainly uh, taken that to, uh, to its peak, I think. Oh, thank you. It's not without its downside. Money doesn't come in steadily. It's very difficult to budget if everything in this gig economy it's difficult to budget when you're not sure what's going to be coming in. Yes. But, uh, you know, every goal has, every cost has a benefit. Every benefit has a cost. So when you're looking at balance, you want to look at the whole picture. There's always something to give up and something to gain from trying a new thing. That's right. And that's, I think, I think what we need to do is talk a little bit about the different stages of your life. You went through, you became an author, you, you wrote uh, a couple of different books, mm-hmm. very different topics. And they were about things that were going on in your life. Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny, I'm definitely a, an extrovert, um, you know, a, a selective extrovert. I can be shy at a party like anyone else, but I do love people. I do value people. I'm a collaboration gal. Like I get more done in collaboration. I get more done in partnership. If I hadn't been a single parent with two kids to raise without child support, I never would have had the courage to go into radio. So I really right. like collaboration. I can write. I can write. I wrote a little in high school. But it's never been, it was never my goal to be an author. I'd much rather run a group, teach a class, learn from other people, have an impromptu conversation. When I was on the radio, I got invited to speak at a lot of places, but I was a celebrity speaker and not a speaker that had to write a speech necessarily. So I can write, but I find writing very lonely. And so therefore it is not my first choice as a way to make a living. <clears throat> Unlike some people who who just love the solitude of me and the typewriter. But I think when I kind of subscribe to Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic theory, which is that ideas are floating around in the universe and they look for somebody to manifest through. So I love that in her book. Oh, it's lovely. Um, Fellow author friends of mine sent me her book, Big Magic, as a gift because I wrote an essay for their book. Um, And that is Armin Bacon and Nancy Miller, who wrote a book called Griefland. And they're writing a new book with essays about long-term grief. And so I wrote an essay for their book and they sent me Big Magic by Liz Gilbert. And I just, I love that idea because if, if you've ever like gotten up Going, oh my God, I've got to get this down on paper or I've got to get this content created. It's like an idea going, okay, it's Jackie's turn to write this idea. And if we lose it, we lose it. And what Liz Gilbert says is then the idea floats around till it finds somebody else to do it, to compose the song or, or write the piece. So both of my books were written because I couldn't ignore the muse, if you would. The first book, is Ben behind his voices. And so one of my big life challenges, which made me detach from a lot of myths was, so I have two children, a son and a daughter. Um, <clears throat> when you and I were pre-chatting, said son walked, you know, in, in the room to tell me he was going to go take a walk. 
my son was first. And in, in the book, I call him Ben. It's not his real name. And, you know, we were doing okay as a single parent family. You know, I, I got him a big brother and big brothers, big sisters. We dealt with the big mystery of where is my father? Does he love me? Is he alive? Is he dead? That's a whole story for another time. But it was single parenting without any, it was single parenting with the open wound and the open question of where is the father? And I did my research and did everything I could to give myself, to give my children a healthy, stable upbringing. And I think I did pretty well. And that included teaching in the private school where I was able to allow them to go for this. I was always looking for a substitute family for them. And we were doing all right. You know, they were happy. They had friends. It was all good. And then my son started having very strange changes in his teen years, which I later learned is a very typical prodromal onset of what I, what it took years to discover was schizophrenia because it happens gradually. And part of my way of dealing with that and processing it with in terms of trying to help my son was to help others go through it as well. And I began teaching a course for the National Alliance on Mental Illness or NAMI called Family to Family and training others to do it. And it was the only thing I could do with my grief was to, was to bring information out to help other families. And then I started telling my story to people and they're like, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. So when I left radio in 2005, I had a severance package and I thought if I'm ever going to write a book, I'm going to write it now. I'm going to, I have the time. I have some money coming in. And so I wrote a book and it was a hundred pages longer than the one behind me. But, um, and again, I used collaboration to make that happen. I took a creative writing class. I took another one. I had a consultant help me. I did the proposal. The book got published by Roman and Littlefield in 2011. So it took me about six months to write it, five years to rewrite it, rewrite it, make the proposal, get it out there, get an agent, get another agent, get a publisher. It came out. And when the book came out, uh, it was received really, really well. It got great reviews. I'm very happy with it. I did the audio book myself, which has now been removed because the company that produced it went out of business, but I'm happy to say I kept the audiobook rights. So I have re-recorded the book with an additional introduction and epilogue and bonus material, and it is out, but it's not yet on Audible, which is the big one, but it's been behind his voices. You can get it on Nook, you can get it on Scribed, you can get it on Chirp, but it's coming to Audible soon. So that was my first book, and that led to a lot of speaking engagements I, I, I was sent to Warsaw to speak to pharmaceutical companies and just wanted to share a family story of a serious mental illness that did not end in tragedy. Yeah. I mean, it's always a tragedy when you have the living grief of a child that isn't going to be what you dreamed for him. But it is what it is. My, one of my seven core phrases in my second book. And as I began speaking about our experience and various other things, being abandoned by my husband, the day I woke up with my left leg paralyzed, finding out at the age of 67 that my 
father was not really my biological father and not being able to ask them about it. You know, we've all had stuff happen to us. We could swap stories back and forth. We all have stories. I don't have any more or any less trauma than anybody else. But, you know, there's been stuff. There's (laughs) definitely been stuff. And the, the comment I always get was, how do you stay so positive? You have such a positive energy and I'm not a joy pusher. I'm not like, you must be happy all the time. Smile, think on the bright side. I never tell people how, let me rephrase that. I do my best not to tell people how to feel. It's always, I, um, it's always a conscious choice because we all want to share what works for us. And I began creating programs based on what I tell myself that talks me off the ledge and keeps me in a happier place. How did I get happily, relatively happily through a year in a leg brace until my leg partially healed? How do I deal now with the fact that I can't run anymore at all because the leg was nerve damage? Well, there's a lot of ways to stay positive and stay happy. And it boiled down to seven core phrases of things that I tell myself when I'm ready to hear them that give me happier moments every day and happier moments add up to a happier life, but it does not add up to happy all the time. You'll never have any misery. It's just a way to be happier so that you have the energy to reach your goals and love other people more and be kinder. And I wanted to write a book that people could remember what it was about when it was over, because this is what I heard. Oh, they tell me I should keep a gratitude list and I did it for three days and I just gave up. Or they tell me I have to take yoga and I just don't have the time. And those things are great. I'm not putting them down, but many of us lowly human beings find it hard to keep up with those things. I've yet to learn how to meditate and yet I can do a mini meditation and I can take a deep breath and just like right now say, this is so cool. I did not expect that I was going to do a podcast with you this morning and look, here we are. And this is so great. And just the phrase to me, this is good, centers me in the moment. So does be here now. So I wrote Happier Made Simple with seven core concepts that spell out the word breathe and seven core phrases that I give the reader on the first page as a reference so that they, we can all say, okay, wait a minute. What can I tell myself right now to make this moment even better or reframe it? And then there's a few bonus chapters in the end with things like, what do we say to other people? And what actions should we take? And the, um, the trap of comparing ourselves to other people is a few bonus chapters, mm-hmm. but that's the bulk of it. And I put stories in there and I make it lighthearted and I hope I make it funny because a lot of the happiness gurus I met we're just either overly, like almost scarily joyful or not funny. Like one thing I talk, I talk about humor. The H and breathe is for humor. And I have talked to Blue Streak right now. And I, I just realized I've probably talked nonstop for four minutes. So I apologize for that. I'm just so excited about the book and getting the concept out there. But humor is a big part of happiness and being happier. And what I learned being a morning radio personality is that the best stories 
or the stories that were embarrassing or weird or slightly scary, like all these negative things were going to be funny the next day. So why don't I just laugh sooner? I'm not talking trauma. I'm just talking annoying teenagers or, you know, a bat in my house or, you know, things like that, that could become luggage, but also can become great stories to connect you to other people. So that's how I became a writer because I kind of had to. That's, I like that. The, uh, the idea of just kind of maybe taking a step back and saying, you know, this could be funny or how could this be funny instead of, you know, going off the deep end and being upset and stressed about whatever the situation might be. And that's right. It's so much easier if you just take a, take a moment. Yeah. That's huge. Jackie, just taking a moment. I mean, I have three, they're not toddlers anymore. My, my grandkids are three and a half to six. So, you know, the temper tantrums that can occur and they're not necessarily temper tantrums, you know, the high feelings that can occur when you're that age and they, they don't have logical centers formed and, you know, having the wrong fork at their place can be major tears and, or just too many people at the dinner table and it's overwhelming can be major tears and take a moment is one of my favorite grandparenting techniques. Like you need a moment, you can leave, you know, come back when you feel ready. Just we live in this fast paced world with constant information, social media. I'll just, throw that out there. I, I met a teenager yesterday who was oh so delightful. He, he came to a, a meeting I was at and he was the youngest person there. He was the grandson of my friend. And he said, I came because I wanted to hear what people older than myself were thinking, people who didn't grow up with social media, because so many of my friends are depressed and sad. And I think we're lost alone. We're lost alone, staring at screens and playing games wow. with invisible people. And wow, he he just inspired me so much because he was aware of this yeah. and trying to do something about it. Like the world is full of incredible people. So taking a moment is is huge. And mindfulness is not a new concept. I didn't think of any new concepts for my book. I just took what was there and made it into an acronym, <laughs> made it. <laughs> hopefully funny and made it accessible that one of the reviews said um, good information without all the psychobabble, which I really liked and psychobabble is great, but I'm not a psychologist, so I wouldn't do that. Exactly. One of the things that you said that when you were writing your book and that you made your seven core concepts, Mm -hmm. you said you tell them to yourselves self when I'm ready to hear them. And I think that's key. And, and it's key in, everything we're doing, all the things that we try to do um, to change our life or to do, you know, move forward with whatever it is, we've got to be ready to hear it. And so many people think they're ready, but they really aren't. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it puts up this wall, I think. You're right. It's, you know, one of my chapters is, um, I call it reality. It's the R and breathe, but another word for that is acceptance. And the phrase is, it is what it is. And that also applies, I'm clear in the book, it applies also to your own feelings. So I'll I'll give you an example. I 
it's a big example. So I woke up from a surgery. I've had four hip surgeries and correcting mistakes and blah, blah, blah. Blame doesn't get us anywhere. But I woke up from surgery number three to find that my left leg did not move. My knee would not respond. So when they got me out of the bed, I couldn't stand because the knee would just not lock. And the nerve had been damaged during surgery. So that's a shock. That's not as big as other people I know, but one leg not working, that would change your life. Yep. And I could not immediately jump to, oh, well, my leg doesn't work. It is what it is. Like I wasn't ready to hear that. I needed to cry. I needed to absorb the shock of that realization. But even on that first day, I did have moments when they strapped essentially a Velcro cast on my leg to lock my knee. And I could see that my ankle did work and my hip did work, but my knee, it was the femoral nerve. So just the knee was affected and everything in those areas. And even on that day, I had a moment of gratitude where thank God, at least my ankle works. So I wasn't going to jump straight to acceptance of the whole situation. It was a process. And any kind of trauma is the acceptance of a trauma is a process, but you can find moments. So it took about six months. It took about three months to know if I was ever going to get it back because nerves can regenerate, but they just don't know. And I can't even tell you but you can imagine the joy I felt when laying on my side without fighting gravity, I moved my knee for the first time. I, that was a hint that I might not be stuck with a leg brace forever. And I'd gone through three leg braces at that point. The first time I walked from that microphone to this microphone was where my editing studio was without my brace on. I was ecstatic for a day. Ecstasy doesn't last, but but it can. So you can't expect if your cat just died to go, oh, well, it is what it is. What's good about this? Like you're not ready to hear it. But after you have processing time and you absorb and accept your own feelings, I think the worst thing you can do when you're feeling something not happy, which is human, is to say, this is what I feel right now. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling if you say, I shouldn't feel angry, I shouldn't feel sad, I should take this like a man or take this like a woman, you're only creating more obstacles for yourself. So part of what I do for me is say, this is not a day for my seven core phrases, you know, or like the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Sometimes you're just like, you know, I'm having one of those days. And I'm just going to be sad today, but I'm not, I'm not going to make any decisions. <laughs> I'm not going to inflict it on other people necessarily. But chances are when you wake up in the morning, you're ready to hear something. You're ready to hear something. So, yeah. So when I'm ready for them and I know when I resist the phrases, I either have to repeat it a few times or I'm not ready. And that's just accepting yourself the way you are. Same thing with the youngins in my life. If we say you shouldn't be sad about that, that just makes them cry more. Well, yeah. 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 So you can't tell someone how they should be feeling. 
No. And boy, do we try. And that's why these seven core phrases are not meant to be said to someone else. If I go to someone and they've just had a fender bender and I go, oh, well, it is what it is. That is, can you imagine? It's going to be, I don't like unsolicited advice, even as a grandma. I think 99% of the time I don't give advice or feedback unless they ask me. And if I'm itching to say something, I say, are you open to any feedback about that? And if they say no, I shut up because it's not my place. It's their place. It's their journey. When they ask me, yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> leave my, uh, somebody asked me yesterday, um, I'm feeling this, which of your core phrases should I use? And I said, well, since you asked, this one <laughs> might work, but um, yeah. So it, it, there's, there's a term that I love and did not make up called toxic positivity. And that is the people who are always, hey, why don't you smile? Hey, look on the bright side. Hey, I like to model it, but I don't like to force it on people. Yeah. The only thing that that will get you, or one of the things that that will get you is the opposite reaction right away. Someone who decides, Hey, I want to punch you. If you tell me that one more time. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I do have one very brief chapter I say brief because there's a lot of great books about there. Say this, not that to other people. But it's got tw- it, it, after the seven core phrases, I do have a phrase of, hey, what about other people? What do I say to them? And, you know, say this, not that. So I just give 20 examples. Like if you're in customer service um, to say, I'll find out instead of I don't know. You know, just yeah. little things that make a difference. That's a. Uh... I think I'm going to be going to look for that book. And I do, uh, I do have an account with Scribe. So I'm going to be checking out uh, Ben after his voices or behind. Oh, thank Ben behind, behind his voices. His voices. Behind, yes. And, and the subtitle in case anyone's listening and wants to know what it's about. You work, we work really hard on subtitles. One family's journey from the chaos of schizophrenia to hope. Yeah. There weren't any books out there that had any hope in them and reality too. So the original book is still available, but it ends in 2011. And you'd have to go to my blog to find out what happened. So the new audio book that's out has an introduction and I actually updated it just a month ago. So. Oh, wow. Great. So as part of beyond retirement, what I try to do with each of my guests and, and, you know, specifically for the listeners is come up with um, ways to get them out of their ever decreasing sandbox. Because mm-hmm. I think that as we get older, a lot of people tend to shy away from trying new things or, or going out and having new experiences. And, and I wanted that to change because I think that a lot of people are scared by the idea of retirement because they're scared that there isn't going to be anything for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that the things that you're doing um, although you started doing them very early in your, in your life, they just kind of, you know, amplify or, or demonstrate for us that there are so many new opportunities out there and so many new things. And it's just a matter of, as you say, reinventing yourself and deciding, okay, well, this door might be closing. What door is opening next? And I'm just, I'm wondering, long-winded kind of wondering, 
what can you suggest to people who are feeling like life is closing off on them? How, how do you change that? How do you make it an opportunity? A really good question. And I think I'm kind of used to it. I think the first thing to examine is what do you love? What have you always wanted to do? And maybe just brainstorm with yourself or with a friend and say, you know, if money weren't an object or if I had all the time in the world, even before you retire, what is it that you think you might like to do? And make a crazy list. You make it, you know, move to Thailand, um, learn magic, uh, become a yoga master. You know, there's a number of, of things and then try one. And for me, I am, I speak a lot about the value of collaboration and partnership. As an improv actor, there is no improv all by yourself. You need partners <laughs> to bounce things off of. And people who are approaching retirement, I think the biggest obstacle is not, not is thinking you're too old to try something new. Yep. So I have a, a plaque somewhere. It's up there. And it just says, I picked it up in some thrift store somewhere. It says, trust your crazy ideas. And that has guided me every time I started a book. It's just like, I don't know if this will work, but I'll give it a shot. So one thing I would suggest is take your limitation hat off and just brainstorm some stuff that you think would be fun to do. And then see if you can find a partner to do it with or to teach you about it. At the same time, perhaps let go of the myth that you're going to become a master at it. I played guitar as a kid. That was, I practiced every night because I wanted to. And then I reached a point where I'm as good as I want to get. And now my skills are rusty. And I play a little bit of piano, what I call guitar piano, because it's chords. When I was in a band, I played I played keyboards a little bit, but there's a part of me that's always like, if I had the time, I would learn piano. So as an example, what holds me back? I'll never get good at it. I don't have time to get good at it. What if I don't like it? What if I look stupid? What if I'm up there in a piano recital with four-year-olds and me, and they're better than I am? Like, you know, so you look, I think you have to look at your doubts And then say, all right, that doubt is valid. I don't want to do it. Or, you know, that's a silly doubt. There are ways around this and take those obstacles and turn them into opportunities. Again, I didn't make that up. That's a tried and true cliche. So I know right now I'm very invested in my books and getting the message out. And I'm not willing to, I don't want to say I don't have the time. We all have the time. I'm not willing to set aside the time right now to practice piano every day. But when I officially retire, I would try it. And if I fail, I fail, but it might be fun. And then it's your attitude. Gee, it might be fun to try. So make a list of crazy ideas. Find out a way that you could try one. Maybe the senior center has a writing class. Maybe con- continuing ed is one of my favorite things, like in the local high school, like look at your local high schools and see if they have a class for that. I tried gardening for the first time a year ago. 
my husband and I were like, let's do a garden. So I go, I went to masterclass.com and took a little class and it was, it was okay, but I just said, well, we'll try it. So we, we bought a few raised beds and we grew some stuff instead of $50 tomatoes. They were, you know, $2 tomatoes. Cause I used to put a tomato plant and it would be like two tomatoes. And it was like, cost me a hundred dollars. Yep. So try and then learn, learn from your mistakes and keep trying. I don't think I'm ever going to be a master gardener, nor do I want to be, but I love growing vegetables and having my grandkids go and pick a snap pea and eat it. So we tried. Will this book be reach my goal of 100,000 copies and translated into 12 languages? I don't know. I'm going to try. I'm doing 100 things in 100 days to to get the word out there. But I did it. I wrote the book. It's out there. So part of that was not letting my fears hold me back. And if you're not, you end up to be not good at something and you move on. Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of clearing the decks when things are holding you back. You know, I have a workshop I do sometimes called toss and dare. Like you have to throw out some old stuff to, and sometimes life throws out old stuff. Like we get fired from our job or we retire or only one leg works. So I'm not going to be tap dancing anymore. Sometimes life throws limitations at us. And sometimes we create our own with our own doubts. So know the difference and be willing to try, be willing to fail and find other people to do it with because doing it alone is the hardest and loneliest way to do stuff. Uh, that's perfect. I like that. Figure out what it is, try some different things, be okay with failing and share the activity. Yeah. Get partnership. My husband, yeah. uh, even getting married a second time was an adventure unto itself and, and getting uh-huh. ready to love myself enough to get married and trust a second time. We're married 12 years now, and he is part of a group called the Rocky Sprockets. And they (laughs) are a group of middle-aged, I have to say at this point beyond middle-aged men, and they love to bicycle. And what they do every year is do a trip. And they bicycle maybe 65 miles to their destination. They hang out in a house or something for two days, and they bicycle back. And maybe every year, maybe next year, it'll be 60 miles. I don't know. But this one thing that they do together keeps them invested in that hobby all year long. They get together once a month to plan the trip. Sometimes the wives and girlfriends come along too. Not on the trip. I don't want to get on a bike for 65 miles, but I support (laughs) my husband's right to do it. So, So that's just an example of being in a group and and getting more done because you're collaborating. So that's a huge secret. So get some crazy ideas. (laughs) Don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to to fail and get people to do it with. Awesome. Thank you very much, Randy. I've really appreciated you joining me today. I'm really happy we had the chance to talk. Me too. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And I look forward to listening to more episodes of your podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Beyond Retirement. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed it. To check out the video interviews, please go to my YouTube channel at bit.ly 
forward slash beyond retirement. That's bit.ly forward slash beyond retirement. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes.